Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. My guest is uh, Benjamin Friedman. He's the head of the Friedman Lab at the University of Washington. And we're going to be talking about uh, induced pluripotent stem cells and CRISPR gene editing. So, uh, Benjamin, how are you doing today? Doing very well. Thank you. Yeah. So tell me about uh, the main focus of your lab's research. Well, we're using stem cells to understand uh, how organs form and also how disease happens in those organs with the hope that we'll be able to actually uh, cure those diseases. And Hmm. our focus is the kidney, because uh, there's a lot of kidney disease. It's actually increasing in frequency, and the therapies are really outdated at this point. So they haven't changed fundamentally in like 60 years. So we actually want to uh, make new therapies for people uh, who have kidney disease using these stem cells and what they can teach us about disease states. So when you say um, uh, kidney disease, what kind of kidney diseases are, are now becoming more common? Well, there's a lot of kidney disease that's associated with diabetes, which is always increasing as our you know uh, population changes and its habits. And we also have a lot of kidney disease that's uh, associated with high blood pressure. In addition to those, which are the really major causes of kidney disease, um, there's also genetic forms of kidney disease which affect people, um, and sometimes these run in families and can be relatively common as well. So it's estimated that you know up to about 10% of all people have some level of kidney disease already. Oh, wow. So you mentioned uh, organoids. Those are uh, pseudo-organs like in a half-made state that uh, emulate <laughs> what an organ will function like? Yeah, there's different types of organoids, but what they all have in common is that they're all structures that are grown from cells in a petri dish and these structures are similar to organs in our bodies either at the structural or the functional level or both Um, these structures aren't real organs so they are miniaturized little pieces of you know cells and arrangements that resemble tissues but they're not fully mature yet uh, but they are relatively sophisticated to compared to just regular cells growing on a plate. You know, so they have some kind of level of three-dimensionality to them, a structure, uh, certain functional characteristics that really scream out the identity of the particular organ that they represent. And you were able to create them in your lab for use in study? Yeah. I mean, before we weren't able to make these types of kidney organoids at all. So it's really a breakthrough that we've actually been able to take stem cells and grow them into these little mini kidney organoids. And these are actually human cells, so you can and it can be done from any patient, anybody in the world essentially. We can now take cells from that person and create new kidney structures uh, from them. And they can't grow these structures on their own. So it's really a unique type of uh, series of events that has to occur and a series of breakthroughs that we had to make in order to get to the point where we can actually do this. So you can take my cells and make organoids that are um, very similar to my own kidneys, for instance? For well, I wouldn't say very similar, but they are your own kidney. They're going to have 
the properties, basic properties of your own kidneys. And that's not just true for the kidneys. We can actually do it for a lot of different types of organs nowadays um, because these stem cells are powerful enough to turn into any organ of the body. So, you know, we could make a mini brain from you, for example, uh, or maybe even a little uh, mini liver. And Ooh. we can play with these in the lab so we can do experiments on them instead of doing experiments on you, you know, because it's a lot safer and a lot more powerful to do it on these little mini organs as a surrogate for you. And in the long term, we could also think about growing structures that are more complicated and more sophisticated that could actually perform or replace the functions of the organs in your body. Hmm. Very interesting. So, all right, so you're making these kidney organoids. Um, are you using uh, one set of cells to make them so they're always the same? Uh, or is it is it okay to uh, create organoids from different cells and there's not enough variation that it, you know you can still test them and work with them? Well, we use you know cells from different people, but they're always the same type of cells that we start off with. And those are these pluripotent stem cells, um, which are powerful enough to make any type of organ in the body. But you know we can do it from anybody's pluripotent stem cells, and there's some variability from one person to the next, as you might imagine, just like we're all different from one another. Our stem cells are all different, but we're trying to figure out ways to make, uh, you know, to do this in a very reproducible way so that the organoids will form well from any individual using a single sort of uh, recipe, if you will. Okay. Gotcha. Makes sense. So, all right. So you create the organoids and then um, what are you doing with them to, you know, to study the different kidney diseases that are out there? So one of the things we're doing is... We're looking at mutant organoids. So these are organoids that have mutations in genes that we know are associated with kidney disease. And in doing that, what we're trying to really do is compare the mutant organoids to organoids that are non-mutants, you know, or quote-unquote healthy organoids. And we're trying to see whether the mutant organoids get sick. You know, do the mutant organoids show a sign, a symptom that screams out to us that they have a disease. Now, because people's cells are pretty different from one another, like I was describing, we mm -hmm. find it easier to actually create the mutations ourselves using gene editing. So we try to use one, you know, one person's cells, like we could take cells from you, you don't have kidney disease, but we could actually use gene editing to change a single gene in the genome of your cells. And then we can see how that, maybe that will give them the disease. And we've done this for a very common type of disease uh, called polycystic kidney disease, as well as for another disease called glomerulosclerosis. And in both cases, we've been able to recreate the fundamental characteristic of the disease in the little mini kidney organoids. So those two diseases, uh, you know, caused by uh, mutations, or what are the reasons for them? Yeah, in this case, they're caused by mutations. Um, so polycystic kidney disease, it's actually a really common disease. So it affects like one in every 500 people or so on the planet. Okay, so millions and millions of people have this disease. And for a genetic disease, it's actually, you know, one of the most common in the world. So that is known to be caused by mutations in either of two genes. Uh, one is called polycystic kidney disease 1, and one is called polycystic kidney disease 2. So we know those genes, and we know that they cause this disease, and we've been able, by 
by making mutations in those genes to recreate that disease in the organoids. And so what this looks like in people, in people, the case of PKD or polycystic kidney disease, the kidneys get very large and they swell up, kind of like they've got these balloons coming off of them. All right, so the tiny little tubes inside the kidneys, which carry our urine and process it, uh, those tubes, they get very large and they open up and they form these big kind of sacs of fluid, uh, which we call cysts. Right. And actually, in organoids, if you make these mutations, we see something very similar. So the organoid, which is normally just this like really very contained, very tight ball of tubules, it swells up to this very large size and forms these fluid-filled balloon-like structures in the dish. So just by changing a single gene, we're actually able to sort of recreate this relatively sophisticated uh, symptom that we see in patients. Well, what happens in people? When does this happen? Is it passed down and it happens at birth, but it just gets progressively worse? Or is it happen in response to dietary or environmental stresses? It's an excellent question. And because it's really hard to follow the progression of a disease like this in people, we don't actually know the full answer. You know, what we do know is that people's kidneys progressively get more and more of these cysts, which you can see at some point you're able to detect them using ultrasound. You know, when they're born, you can't see these cysts and the kidneys look normal. But over the process of about 50 years, the kidneys get more and more of these cysts. They get bigger and bigger. And finally, at some point in many of these patients' lives, their kidneys will fail. And at that point, uh, they have no choice but to either go on hemodialysis or to get a kidney transplant. So that's, how, that's what we know at the patient level. But we can't like watch individuals, patients, kidneys over time as they change because they're inside the body and the patient is out, you know, living their life. So, you know, we have a very limited ability to really observe these events in humans. Now, that's very different in our organoids. You know, here we can actually watch the entire process under a microscope, watch it unfold. And just by doing that, we're learning new things about how this actually happens, how the disease actually occurs. So I think that's one of the great strengths of these, you know, mini organ systems is that they give us a window into these disease processes, which we really can't observe any other way. Mm. So for PKD, what have you observed so far? Can you give away the, the secrets that you've learned? Or <laughs> Yeah, no, sure. I mean, luckily we publish these things. So, you know, the way it works is in academic science is that uh, we routinely publicize our findings so that everybody can can learn what we've learned. And uh, in this case, we've had a couple of publications recently that are are shedding some light on this. So one of the observations we've made is that when the cyst forms, what's actually happening is that a a, a tubule, which is a tiny little tube, it actually kind of lifts off, it detaches a little bit from all the other little tubes that it's it's around, okay? And by detaching, it somehow has the ability to sort of relax and open up into, instead of a long, thin structure, it, 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 it forms sort of more of a balloon-like structure. So it's kind of like a rubber band. If you can think of a rubber band, mm. you know, you got a rubber band in your hand and you can pull it with your, between two fingers, right, between your two hands, 
So it's stretched out nice and long, right? But if Mm -hmm. you were to release that rubber band, it would pop back and form sort of a circular shape. So that seems to be what's happening. That seems to be what's happening when these little tubules in the kidney turn into these cyst structures. And recently, we've actually been able to link this event to a kind of muscle-like pathway where, you know, we, as it turns out, these tubules actually have to be, you know, constricted. They have to be contracted to keep themselves in their long conformation, okay, in that long shape. So they actually have to do work to do this. It's like, you know, when you, when you, when you lift a weight, you know, you need to use your muscles to do that work, right? Right. To, to move it into that position. So the same is true, it seems, in these, in these kidney tubes is that they need to do some work to stay in the shape that they're in. And what appears to be happening in PKD is that the tube has lost its ability to do that kind of work efficiently. And as a result, it gets to be in a more relaxed state. It sort of lets itself go. And that's why it's, you know, forming this, this, this uh, more balloon-like structure, which is not good for the body. So what have you noticed in the organized? Do these um, balloons... Uh, structures accumulate and they tangle up and, you know, kill the organoid and how fast is it happening? Does this shed light on whether this is uh, inherited or occurs during, you know, some point in someone's life? So what we've observed so far is that it doesn't seem to damage the rest of the tubules that are nearby, but it does continue to grow. So the cysts are something, so they're unusual in that normally the kidney tubes form and then they stay in their shape and they don't continue to grow. But because these, these cysts essentially are spread out in three dimensions and there's nothing containing them, there's nothing keeping them in their shape, they have a low but continuous growth rate. So it's almost a little bit like a, like a cancer in a way. Mm. And the cells continue to grow and they continue to expand and they continue to, to, to swell up with fluid inside. So... I think that the the problem with the kidney, and this is actually very similar to what you see in people, because in people, the kidneys continue to get larger and the cysts continue to get larger. And eventually what happens is that it crowds out or blocks out those other tubes, you know, that are nearby. And, uh, you know, by sort of starving out that other tissue, it causes the disease. So I think we're able to see that the hallmark of that in our organoid. But why they continue to grow in this way, you know, that's not quite yet clear. You know, is that something that's part and parcel of that disease process? Or is it just a result of giving them sort of more space to expand in three dimensions? We don't know the answer to that yet. Well, what's the mechanism by which uh, there's this inherent tension, I guess you can call it, to keep these tubules straight? And are you able to stimulate the organoids so it may, there's more tension and the tubes are pulled tighter or loosened. Is there anything in there that you seem like that? Right. So we know we use this, the, the way we discovered that really is by a drug which targets a specific uh, protein, which is in all these cells. And that's a, it's a protein called myosin. It's essentially a muscle, it's a muscle-like protein. So that protein pulls on things in cells, and it's a way for cells to pull themselves into specific shapes, kind of like, you know, the cells are doing yoga, right? So they need this, mm-hmm. this special protein to do that. So we, we hypothesize, okay, we, we think that the way this is working is that 
the proteins, the genes that are causing PKD somehow must be talking to this other protein, which is, you know, the, the yoga instructor protein called myosin. Um, and that's instructing the cells to pull themselves into a particular shape. So we're, we're now, what we're, so, and we know this because of, we can use a drug, which was discovered a long time ago called blebistatin that specifically targets that myosin protein. So now what we're trying to do is use other drugs. So that, was, that drug blocks myosin. And when we do that, we can see that the tubes very quickly form these cysts, okay? And really just a matter of a couple of days, they, they balloon out. Now we're trying to ask the opposite question. If we were to, instead of blocking that protein, if we were to now activate it, could that be a therapeutic pathway whereby we could actually block the formation of the cyst? So, you know, the great thing about these organoids is that you can just add in different types of drugs at any concentration you want, and you can see the effect of these drugs on human structures that are very similar to the tissues in our body. And that's one of the, that's one of the ways that we actually uh, figure out how these pathways are working and how the diseases are occurring. Well, okay. Um... What about, you know, kidneys will go through, I guess, a cycle. You know, I don't, I don't know what you'd call it or what happens, but they process, you know, elements in the body and they create the urine and then they, you know, it gets discharged and then they process. And, you know, have you observed uh, using the organoids, are they able to go through any of this process? And uh, are you observing the uh, change in structure or tension or, I, I don't know, I mean, things going on in the kidney as it's working? Or is that too yeah, difficult to do with an organoid? Well, it's still kind of a frontier, right? So the organoids don't have a blood supply like our kidneys do in the body. Um, but we can see that they are active and they are trying to do what we call transport. So a lot of what the, the kidneys do in the body is they're actually uh, moving components of our blood around, right? They're separating out the components of the blood that we don't need or would want. And they're actually doing the opposite for all the components that we do need and want, right? So they're actually keeping those things in our body. So, you know, urine, it changes constantly based on what the body needs. And the kidney has a very fine-tuned sense of exactly the right amount of salt, the right amount of sugar, and the right amount of water, and the right amount of everything else that's in our blood to keep us healthy and happy, right? So that's why if, you, if a person has kidney disease, they start having imbalances in the composition of their blood, and they'll start taking on water where they shouldn't be taking on water, etc. So what we can see in the organoids, although they are far less sophisticated and they don't actually have real blood to deal with, they do have a solution around them. And if we add in something to the solution that the kidneys should like to take in, okay, like certain types of, of, of sugar molecules, we can actually see those getting absorbed into our organoids. So, and we can watch these processes happen sort of in real time. So we know that the organoids do function and they have some level of functional transporters in these little tubes. Okay, interesting. Um, have people been able to observe kidneys working in situ in the body, or is that just too difficult? 
without you know killing the organism and disturbing it. Well, yeah, I mean it's hard to do in humans, right? Because right, right, right. you know you wouldn't want to put in anything that could actually damage uh, a patient. Um, it, it, it's also a little bit hard to do in animals, just because you know it's really hard to see through the skin, as it turns out. You know, even even things like MRI, ultrasound, you know, you're sort of limited to seeing, you know, very, very thick, hard, you know, structures, for example, but or, you know, solid tissue. But it's hard to actually see what's actually happening in the areas that have liquid in them, you know, which is a lot of the areas that are of interest uh, when you're looking at an organ like the kidney. So, yeah, we think that this is a really good way of looking at some of these processes that we haven't been able to watch before. And with all the powerful types of microscopes that are now available, you know, there's a lot of different uh, possibilities out there for watching these things happen and learning how they occur. Hmm. All right. So what's um, so what's next with the research? What direction are you taking it, and uh, you know, what what breakthrough are you hoping for in the near future? So, you know, one of the things we want to do in the short term is to use our system to identify pathways that these diseases are working on and use that as a stepping stone to develop effective therapies. So there's really very few medicines that have been developed for kidney disease, and we need to change that. You know, we need to be able to give people a medication at an early stage, you know, before these you know, kidneys have gotten to their endpoint. You know, we need to be able to intervene early and keep them healthy and prevent, slow down the progression of the disease. So we're working on that for polycystic kidney disease, and we're taking kind of an agnostic approach where by using the organoid system, we can profile, you know, many, many drugs at one time. So you can actually look at many more drugs than you could possibly use or examine um, in a patient clinical trial, or even if you had a mouse uh, with the disease, you know we can we can we can access many more uh, experiments at a single time. And then we're actually using uh, robots to do these experiments for us because you can actually automate the entire process of generating the organoids and adding the drugs, and then uh, you know looking at them and analyzing them. So that's I think going to be you know, a short-term effort, but it should have big long-term dividends, is that if we can figure out, you know, the drugs that can basically interfere or reverse the diseases that we're seeing in the dish. Uh, the other okay. thing I'd say that's sort of on the horizon for us in the long term is we're always thinking, how can we make these organoids more functional, more like actual organs, so that we could create, you know, replacement tissue for people who need them? Right, because even though you can get a kidney transplant if you're very lucky, those transplants are not matched to your own body. So as a result, uh, people who receive kidney transplants they need to take really strong immunosuppressive medications in order to get their bodies to tolerate those transplants. So if we could grow our own kidneys, right? If we could grow our own kidneys, then we could generate transplants on demand, and they could be potentially they wouldn't need this immunosuppression, and they would last forever. Whereas even mm. even a kidney on immunosuppression, eventually it get, it wears out. So we're we're trying to use the organoids as an entry point, and this is I think a much longer term goal, but it is still a very important goal 
to actually be able to create new grafts for people from their own bodies. Interesting. Well, well there's a lot of ways you can go with it. Yeah, if you're ever going to recreate an entire kidney, the organoids are the first step. <clears throat> and then, like you said, it's a much better model probably than an animal model to understand disease in the kidney. And the better you get and the more the closer you get to approximating an actual kidney for these organoids, it's uh, useful for a lot of different things, I can see. Yeah, so we're really only at the beginning, you know. Uh, so we're, we're, it's going to be exciting, I think, over the next many years to watch the field uh, continue to grow and see how, how close we can get these little mini organs, you know, for the kidneys, but also for many other organs uh, to approximate what's actually happening in the body and, to, yeah. you know, maybe even have functional tissues out of them in the end of the day. Hmm. All right. Well, very good. So what's the best way for uh, interested parties to get in touch with you and to find out more? Well, we, you know, they can email me, uh, so uh, I can be contacted at b-e-n-o-f at uw.edu. Uh, we have a website, which is friedmanlab.com. Friedman has two E's. And then follow me on Twitter. You know, I occasionally uh, uh, will, will, will send out some information or highlight something that's of interest to the, to the stakeholders, and that's Bino Friedman uh, at Twitter. So, it's B-E-N-O-F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N. Uh, that's my handle on Twitter. All right, that's great. Well, Benjamin, thank you for coming. And it's interesting work that you do. And, uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.